Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to Hope for Your Heart. This is Pastor Calvin Corbett with Hickory Ridge Community Church, thanking you so much for joining us on the Monday broadcast. Hope that you had an incredible weekend, and I just am coming off a great weekend, and I had the privilege of being part of a beach wedding. You know, more and more people, it seems today, as they are getting married, are choosing to be married out on the beach. And thankfully, the weather cooperated. We were down in the Outer Banks and had a great weekend. And uh, the wedding party uh, even paid for me and my wife to stay at a hotel down there for the weekend. So we had a wonderful time. You know, I was thinking about as the bride was walking down that aisle, uh, right there on the Atlantic Ocean, a beautiful background with waves crashing on the shore. And I saw the radiance of the young lady as she's walking down the aisle. And they did something a little bit different to this ceremony. The groom had his back to the bride. And then when the wedding march took place and as she is walking down uh, that sand seashore and then he looks around and he has that first look at that bride. And he has, he was just driven to tears as he says, she's beautiful, she's beautiful. And I was thinking about uh, that fact that he kept repeating that she's beautiful, she's beautiful. And uh, thinking about what Christ thinks about us. We are the bridegroom of Christ. And when he looks at us, he looks at us and says, you are beautiful. You are beautiful. Now today, if you are lacking joy, you picked a great day to join the broadcast because I'm going to be sharing today and tomorrow seven ways in which you can experience the power of joy. And it has nothing to do with our circumstances. It has everything to do with our relationship with Christ. You know, the story is told of two men. They're riding a tandem bike up a very steep hill. After much effort, they finally made it to the top of the hill. The front rider said, man, that was a tough ride. To which the second rider replied, sure was. And if I hadn't kept the brakes on, we might have slipped backwards down that hill. (laughs) So what do you think about that? Maybe that's how you feel today. You feel like you are are riding a tandem bike up a steep hill and everybody that's involved in your life keeps putting the brakes on you and uh, you keep having your life slowed down. And as a result, you've lost the joy in your life. You know, when it comes to having powerful joy, do you often feel like people are putting the brakes on your life? Life keeps stealing our joy. You know, the Westminster Catechism says this, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Well, why is it then that Christians seem to have forgotten the enjoy part? It seems like we're enduring, and uh, we've got our, our shoulder to the plow, but it seems like we have lost our joy. Well, today I want to look at Acts chapter 22, and Paul is giving a message. And this message that he is given is given to a mob of angry people. Uh, They're not happy with Paul. Uh, They're not happy with what is happening within the Roman Empire. And so Paul is facing a mob. He's facing those who are opposed to his message. And he begins Acts chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, by saying, Brothers and fathers, hear my defense before you now. Now, when they heard that uh, he had spoke to them in Hebrew in that, that language, they kept silent and they listened. All of a sudden, they had this opportunity to be involved in a message. Now, how did Paul have that unbelievable joy? How did he have that capacity, even when he's got the pressure of those coming against him, how did he not lose his joy? Well, there's seven things I think we can take out of Acts chapter 7 that will really encourage you today. Number one, communication connects us well. 
You know, the single biggest problem in communication is the illusion that it has taken place, said George Bernard Shaw. Just as some people are tone deaf when it comes to singing, it seems like some people are tone deaf when it comes to communication. So Paul, as he's giving the defense, he speaks in the language of those who are listening to him. It grabs their attention. We can say he understood the audience that he was speaking to. You know, a young man called his mother and excitedly announced one day that he had found the woman of his dreams. His mother says, well, that's great. Well, why don't you send her flowers and invite her to your apartment for a home-cooked meal? The day after the big date, his mother called to see how things had gone. Mom, the evening was a complete disaster, he replied. It was horrible. Why? She didn't come over? His mother asked. Oh, yeah, she came over, but she refused to cook. You see, somewhere along the line, the communication fell apart. Paul says, now, brothers and fathers, I want you to listen to my defense. He grabs their attention. He speaks in their language. And, you know, think about a a well-communicated message. Something that is well-communicated actually brings joy, and it changes the recipients, the ones who are hearing it. And I think if you're going to be a good communicator, you've got to write things down. You've got to know where you want to go in that conversation. Uh, just like I mentioned the, the, the wedding that I, I did yesterday, uh, as I think about the communication that took place, uh, one of the couples that were in there had written some things down about the bride and the groom, and they communicated that at the reception. And then the young lady who was married, she was actually a twin, and her twin sister wrote down some things about her experience in growing up as a twin. It was powerful. It was effective. It was on the level that everybody understood. Now, Paul was selling a major change to his audience. The change was this. You're going to be saved by faith alone and Christ alone, and it's not going to be by works. He wanted this great message to be communicated well. When you think about communicating well, what was Paul needing to have come out of his message? Well, Luke chapter 645 says this. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. Paul was able to bring a good message of joy because his heart was right. The rest of that verse, Luke 6.45 says, And an evil man brings evil things out of evil stored in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So if you're having a hard time communicating, look at your heart. What is the intent? What is the motive? Where is your heart? You see, a good heart will have a good message. A bad heart will have a bad message. You see, good communication involves getting uncomfortable so that those around you can be comfortable. Now, don't we just do the opposite? We want others to feel comfortable with us. They say, well, you're going to get on my level. No, we need to get on their level. Paul was dealing with a situation that needed his utmost attention, and he was trying to bring a change in the hearts of people. I discovered something about the difference between negative people and positive people. Negative people are afraid of change. They close off to change. Positive people are ready for new experiences to take place. Paul was ready to give a new message of hope to those who were receiving the message. Now, as he gave his message, and he spoke in Hebrew and Aramaic, He was prepared, his audience knew he was prepared, and they became engaged, and the Bible says they actually became very quiet. 
Paul knew his message was going to bring about stress to its hearers because he was introducing a major change. So what did he do? He tried to minimize the stress as much as possible. He kept his message positive and upbeat and even cheerful. Now I discovered something as you speak with people. If you smile often, people are more likely to listen to you. That smile is that, that universal language of acceptance. So today, as we think about joy, communication connects us. Number two, use the talents that God has given you. Use your credentials for God's work. Let's go back to Acts chapter 22 and look at verses 2 all the way down through 5. Paul says, I am a Jew. I am born in Tarshish of Cilicia, but I was brought up in this city. I studied under the feet of Gamaliel, and I was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as many of you are today. You see how Paul is complimenting them? He's saying, you guys have a zeal for God, and I'm just as zealous as you. He says, I was persecuting the followers of the way. I was going against those who had the true message of salvation. I was arresting men and women and throwing them into prison. As the high priest and all the council can testify, I even had letters that I had obtained, and I had used these letters to bring people to prison in Jerusalem to be punished. Now, as we think about this, Paul is resting on his character that is seen in his credentials. Here's a couple of things about credentials. You know, the best Christians often were the worst sinners. You know, your past doesn't have to determine your future. Or maybe you're listening to me today says, man, I had a bad past. I was hooked on drugs. I lived a very hedonistic, a very sensual lifestyle. My life is now different. Listen, leave your past behind you. Realize that God is not going to judge you on your past. He's going to judge you on what you're doing today. You know, your past does not have to be your future. The second thing I see that Paul did is that he used his credentials to advance the gospel, not himself. Now, that is a key point. Advancing not yourself, but advancing the gospel. You know, nobody likes to listen to somebody who is always talking about themselves. So Paul understood this. The third thing that Paul understood is there is a genuine enthusiasm that he had, and it was undeniable. There's something about enthusiasm that is contagious, right? If you are excited about the message of what Christ has done in your life, that's going to rub off on people. It will bring about change in the lives of people. Now, listen, the world knows this. As a matter of fact, I think the world has taken this from Christians. Having a testimony. The before and after pictures, right? Weight Watchers. This is your life before you come to Weight Watchers, where you show yourself way overweight, and then you're on Weight Watchers for six months or whatever, and all of a sudden, there's a whole new you. The world uses the before and after pictures to drive home their advertisement, to drive home the fact that you ought to purchase their product. Well, you know, the gospel does more than any other program can do because the gospel is not a program. The gospel is a, a life-changing, heart-changing event that your life is never again the same. It doesn't just change your circumstances. It changes your heart. It changes the whole direction of your life. Now, listen, if you've been born again, you ought to have zeal in your life. In Ecclesiastes 9, it says, verse number 10, whatever you find your hands to do, do it with all your might. I love that. With all gusto. For in the realm of the dead, where you are going, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. Solomon is saying this, and I'll paraphrase what he just said. When you die, enthusiasm cannot change you. 
But while you're alive, enthusiasm can bring about radical change. Listen, every experience, both good and bad, are used to advance God's purposes in our lives. Paul continues his list of Jewish credentials, and he begins in verse number five, and his purpose is to support that right to preach salvation by faith, not by works. Paul met every ritualistic and every legal requirement of Judaism, but he was one step above his detractors. They couldn't look at his life and say, well, Paul, you don't know what it's like to be a Jew, because he was a Jew of the Jews. And yet he realized that he was made righteous not because of his Judaism. He was made righteous before God because of the faith he had in Jesus Christ. Now, Paul mentions his burning passion for Judaism, and that led him to be brutally persecuting Christians before his own conversion. Paul's original name was Saul, and and he was infamous for his harassment of the church before he was changed by Christ. If you'd like to read his whole conversion experience, it's found in Acts chapter 9. When he first became a believer, as a matter of fact, many Christians actually feared him and were reluctant to accept him. Now, Paul notes also that according to the Torah and according to the law, he was obedient. He followed the Jewish traditions to a T. He kept himself ritualistically clean. Very few Jews could make this claim that Paul made. Even fewer could match all of the claims that Paul had listed in his life in these very short few verses. This is why Paul could say, even though he had reason to be confident in these rituals and confident in these works, he had something more that he was confident in. And keep in the back of your mind Philippians chapter 3. Paul gives a list of all he had done as a Jew. Philippians 3, verse number 4, he says, We were part of the circumcision. We were part of the ones who put no confidence in the flesh. I want you to know, You will have enthusiasm when you realize that your salvation is not dependent upon what you have done because it's already been done for you. You will have zeal. I love that word zeal, right? Zeal is defined as great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause or an objective. Now, now maybe one of the best ways to give an object lesson of what this enthusiasm is all about is thinking about how you felt when you were in love for the first time. I think you think about that young lady, and uh, and you were pursuing her, and you were filled with zeal, right? Uh, you weren't lacking energy and trying to pursue her. You didn't get hung up on the, all the obstacles. Somebody may have said, well, she is too good for you. Uh, you weren't even thinking about that. You said, I'm going to win her over. Uh, you weren't thinking about how much it was going to cost you. I mean, you were, you were willing to pay any price, invest any amount of money to win her over. You were zealous to win her over. The same ought to be true in our walk with Christ. In John 2, 17, what a great verse this is. The disciples are gathered together, and they remembered what was written in the Old Testament. John 2.17 is a a record of what is recorded in the Old Testament about the whole Christian faith. Zeal for your house has eaten me up. That ought to be the testimony of every believer, that we are zealous for doing the things of God. Filled with alertness, being able to stand firm in the faith, being strong in the faith. It was William Booth, the founder of uh, the Salvation Army movement, 
who said this, As believers in Christ, we should work as if everything depended upon us, and we should pray as if everything depends upon God. Oh, I want you to know the first step of having the joy of the Lord is realizing that you've got to be filled with zeal. Uh, You've got to be filled with being able to communicate the great message of salvation. And then number three, you've got to have a conversion that is genuine. Now, listen, I'm going to probably have to explore that point tomorrow in the broadcast. But I want you to know that your life can be different if you completely trust the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Listen, God is not dead. In April of 1966, Time Magazine set off a firestorm of public debate by publishing a cover story asking this question. Three words. Is God dead? But looking back on the 50th anniversary of that article, the magazine pointed out that the survey results show that back in 1966, 97% of Americans believed in God and they were offended by that question, is God dead? The number has been shrinking, however, ever since. In 2016, the Pew Research Company found that only 63% of Americans believed with absolute certainty that God is not dead. You see, people need to go somewhere for answers to the questions of life. They need to find a deeper meaning to life. So if they're not turning to God, where do they turn to? They are turning more frequently to Google, to Alexa, to Siri, and and they're asking this question, who needs God when we've got Google? They're running frequently to artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is already embedded into our everyday lives. It influences what streets we walk down, which clothes we buy, what articles we read, who we date, and where and how we choose to live. It has been almost a godlike invention. One tech worker said this, At the end of the day, artificial intelligence is just a lot of math. It's just a lot, a lot of math. It is intelligence by brute force, and yet it is supposed to be semi-divine. I see, one of the most influential science fiction stories of our time is, is a story of the last question, which actually dramatizes the uncanny relationship between the digital and the divine. These days, the story is usually told in an updated form. A group of scientists create this thing called artificial intelligence systems, and they ask, is there a God? The artificial intelligence spits out an answer, and the answer originally was insufficient computing power to determine an answer. Then they redoubled their efforts and spent years improving the capacity of artificial intelligence. Then they asked the question again, is there a God? The AI responds, There is now. In other words, the God is found in technology. But ultimately, in seeking answers from artificial intelligence, we need to realize that there is no super intelligent machine crafting the answers to our deepest questions. Instead, the main thing to learn from the New York Times story is that people write the scripts for which Google and Amazon and Alexa and other devices will answer when asked these questions. As you look at this, they they prioritize and they come up with these answers. This is not truly artificial intelligence. 
It is still human programming. In other words, they're taking the response of people and they're saying enough people don't believe there is a God, so there must not be a God. You see, the existence of God is not based upon how many people believe it or not. It's kind of like if you believe that you can live without oxygen, you may be able to get a whole lot of people together that believe that with you. But the bottom line is this. When oxygen is removed from a room, you're going to pass out and you're going to eventually die. That is the truth of the matter. Listen, God is still alive. He is alive and he's active in our lives. He is very much involved in what is happening. This morning, the sun rose from the east and it was set in the west. That is because our our earth is spinning on this axis, and it's going to happen again every 24 hours. The earth will continue around the sun, and we'll have sunsets and sunrises every single day. Why does that happen? It's not because we have the ability to keep it all together, because God created it. Not only did God create it, God sustains it. I want you to know that you can have joy today knowing that God is in control. I'm so glad that it's not dependent upon me to keep things spinning, to keep things under, under control. Our God is able to take care of that. Well, the third thing that we've got to look at is the power of conversion. We're going to develop this more in tomorrow's broadcast. But today, if you are lacking joy, think about what you're communicating. Think about what you're speaking. Look at the credentials that God has given you. Look at how God has wired you in such a way that you are unique. Nobody is quite like you. Nobody's voice is like yours. Nobody's DNA is like yours. Nobody's fingerprints are like yours. You are an amazing creation created in the image of God. God has given you talents that nobody else has. God gives you likes and God gives you dislikes. Even your personality is unique to you. Remember the joy comes from realizing that God has gifted me. And then conversion. A conversion that is genuine, a genuine coming to Christ. As we look at Acts chapter 22, verses 6 through 10, we looked at this story of Paul coming to Christ. In verse number 6, it says, About noon as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be a witness to all people of what you have seen and what you have heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away calling on his name. Well, in the broadcast tomorrow, I'm going to give you three primary evidences of a genuine conversion. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what conversion is all about. Conversion is not a change of mind only. It's a change of your mind and of your heart. Listen, you can have your mind changed about things all the time. New things occur to you. It's not just having a change in your mind. It's having a change of your heart. You're given a new heart. That old heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh, and that direction of your life is much different. When this happens, there is the joy of conversion. When we think about what can happen in your life when you are truly born again, your life will radically change. Well, maybe you're listening to me today and says, well, I'm not sure. 
that I've been truly born again. But listen, today is the opportunity for you to be the recipient of the gospel. The gospel is nothing but the good news. The good news of what? The good news that Jesus came 2,000 years ago. He was 100% God, 100% man. And when he came to this world, he walked among us. He came and was born as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem. I won't be too much longer. We'll be celebrating Christmas. We celebrate the birth of Christ. Not that Jesus was created in Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem. Jesus always existed, but he was born a baby. And then he had an earthly ministry that lasted for just three and a half years. He was placed on that cross. He was crucified. But then three days later, he rose again. That is the joy that we experience. That is the good news that we experience. And today, if you'll put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you will be born again. Just a simple little prayer. God, I believe that you died on the cross for me, that you rose again three days later. I put my faith and trust in you. I received that free gift of salvation. Listen, when you do that, you're born again. You will experience joy because your sins have been forgiven. You're on a whole new trajectory in your life. The old's done away with, and all things have become new. Oh, my friend, if you just received Christ as your Savior, would you give me a call? I'm going to give you my personal cell phone number. You can call me at 252-267-2365. 252-267-2365. Tell me about your conversion experience, and I'll be happy to pray with you. I got something I'd like to send you in the mail as well. Well, God bless you. Thank you so much for listening to the broadcast today. So glad you joined us. I look forward to seeing you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. Be safe as you're driving home today. Hickory Ridge Community Church is located at 3220 South Battlefield Boulevard, Chesapeake, Virginia. Sunday service times are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. We'd love for you to join us. For more information, you go to our website at www.hrcc7.org. No matter what you're going through, remember... In Jesus Christ, there is always hope for your heart.